and welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania podcast. I'm AJ. Oh, dang it. I forgot to switch him back to English since he got back from Japan. Hold on. Uh, let's get. All right. Let's try and again. I'm your co-host, Gavin. Oh, there oh. he is. Back from Japan. I love it. I love it. How are you? Good, sir. I'm doing well. How are you? I am. Uh, I'm great. It's great to have you back. Uh, we're recording. Uh, well, once again, not in person, but at least both in California. Not on our usual day, but we're still getting it done. Still happy to see you. Happy to have you back. Once again, super thankful to have Tiger fill in for you for that one episode. But uh, hey, you know what? We're the magnificent duo. Oh, it was a lot of fun listening to to your Tiger episode. I have one gripe. You bring up Charles Bronson on an episode. I'm not present. I know. And it was a sick, because here's here's how that whole thing came together. Uh, I was already planning to ask Tiger, but it was the that Sunday of that week, the Sunday, the day you left. And yeah. as I had mentioned, I think in the episode, Jessica was driving us around that day. So Tiger, and he always happens to text me when, uh-huh. I, when Jessica's driving. It's just uh-huh. the weirdest thing. And so I have time to text, right? And uh that was like this scenario he came up with, like, you know, the possibilities. And it's a hypothetical that a lot of people talk about what would have happened to Bruce Lee had he lived. But he brings up the whole like, oh, you know, maybe he would have gone the Charles Bronson route. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that is super. I mean, that is definitely something that could have happened. And yes, we did bring up Charles Bronson without. No, you, I, so. I loved it. I'm like, it, it, did they did they make this episode for me? So I was listening, obviously, in Japan. So your listenership in Japan increased we by. We, uh, we got one play and I forget. I wrote down the exact <laughs> city that it said it was in. So uh, it should be either Kyoto or Tokyo. No, it started with an O. Oh, Okayama, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I can look up real quick, but uh but I, I downloaded it to make sure I could listen to it because I, I was in and out of Wi-Fi. So downloaded it when I was on like uh, the bullet train. Okay. So who knows what city it was downloaded in. And then I listened to it in Tokyo. Right. So that's what happens sometimes. So I'm going to scroll through right now. I have last 30 days. What? I should have popped up there for last 30 days. I don't know. That's weird. Oh, because I'm on my phone, maybe. I would have to do it mm. on the computer. Yeah, so the phone doesn't uh, give me as much data. Oh, that's doing by city. Let's do by country. Here we go. Ah. Oh, so we had three plays in Japan? Oh. Oh, but see, on the phone app, it won't give me the city. Sorry, I'll have to look it up next time. I don't that's, waste that's time. That's okay. I, but, uh, yeah, but basically, I uh, I listened to it in Japan, had a lot of fun. And when I do listen to our episodes, full disclosure, I listen at 1.25 speed. When I was... Listening to the episode with Tiger, I listened at regular speed. Nice. Yes. Nice. Yeah. The, the funny part is I go back and I listen to our episodes. I never intend – I don't listen to them until after they come out. I know in theory I yeah. should listen to them before in case there's any extra editing, but typically I take notes. I never intend to listen to our episodes all the way through, but then I do. And the funny part is I forget half of the stuff I say. So I could almost go back and listen to our episodes like – a regular listener and even for example yesterday jessica on our way to uh we had date night at red lobster that's right red lobster because we had a gift card that her cousin gave us and let me tell you red lobster didn't disappoint i i think i've only ever been (laughs) once in my life so i was like red lobster because it was one of those gift cards that has multiple options yeah we chose red lobster and for our listeners internationally or overseas that don't know red lobster is a well-known seafood chain in america not fast food but what you'd call like fast casual, but a massive nationwide chain. It's very well known. It's been around forever. And I was surprised by how high of quality all the food was. 
that's great yeah i think yeah. I, I think i've been there once myself so but please any, tell any, jess's cousin i, I accept yeah. gift cards to okay well, red I'll lobster let, i'll let her know uh but my point being on our way there we were re-listening to podcasts and i made a really cheesy joke and i didn't remember <laughs> making it it was about Cher and michelle yo and i was like it, oh in yes. my defense it was a couple of weeks ago but uh yeah uh, I do end up going back and listening to our episodes, and it, it's it's interesting because it's not – I'm not listening because I love the sound of my own voice. It's more so I listen, and I try to take notes on how I can improve, mm-hmm. especially with my spoken word, and it's interesting – while we're recording, you don't realize how often you say things like, um, and, uh, yet you go back and listen, and you are constantly doing those things. So for me, as somebody that is pursuing a career in academia and wanting to be a lecturer, it's also a good reminder of sometimes we just need to slow down and think about what we're going to say before we say it. The other problem is that we get so excited that I don't really even care once in a while if we're just kind of rambling and saying, um, and, and, and then, and like, so. Well, you, you know, we do our, uh, our social media bully, James. <laughs> he did he's, say he's he, my biggest supporter. He's always like, uh, giving me compliments and stuff, but. Uh, well, our social media bully, James, he was, uh he was he texted me the other week about sometimes when we get really excited he's he forgets he has to check to see if we're in regular speed or 1.25 speed. Yeah, I so, can I can talk fast, that's for sure. I I've never, you know, I didn't grow up as a huge fan of the rap genre, but I definitely have the gift of the of the gab and I can speak very fast when I choose to. So, I also come from a big Italian family where you had to speak loud and mm-hmm. fast to be heard. So that's probably where it came from. Like when our family, when my family gets together, it's if you're an outsider coming in, like, you know, Jessica, that came from a much more kind of quiet and reserved family. And then you show up to one of my large family gatherings. It's it's chaos. <laughs> but that's the way it goes. So, yeah, let's hear about your trip to Japan. So first time listeners or people that missed a few episodes, Gavin. Got to go back to Japan. It was a quick one-week trip, but he made the most of it. He was sending great pictures and some videos along the way. He listened to my instructions and got what looks like maybe the best bowl of udon noodles ever. So first thing, right out the gate, how were those udon noodles? Okay, first thing out the gate, we were at at a store, had been, I was... Before I went to the record, uh, before I went to the store with my sister, we were at a record store. I was carrying around this the bag of a few records that I purchased. Dieter and I were hungry. We wanted some. I wanted udon because we were in Takamatsu, which is the udon capital of the world, uh, self-proclaimed. And uh, so I'm in the st- I'm in the store with this uh, the I guess the shop proprietress, and she's like, "Oh, my father shops at that record store. I, uh, he really likes records." And I'm like, "Oh, that's cool." And I'm like, "You know, by the way." what's a good udon shop around here? She recommends this curry udon shop. She's like, oh, but at this time, there's probably a line. It's 7.55 p.m. It opens at eight. My sister and I go by, there's a line down the street. So we're like, ah, we're too hungry. So we go to another udon shop, like a like a, like a a red lobster style udon okay. shop. It's just, it's, it's, eh, they have a few around. It was okay. It was nice. It was nice and warm. The noodles were fine. Everything was fine. But 
I really wanted that curry udon. <laughs> so we talked to the uh, the people at our hotel. We had invited them out to dinner, the the hotel owners, and uh, turns out that the guy who makes the udon is friends plays golf with the hotel owner's wife. So she calls him, says, we're coming by. He's like, you start to get in line. So we show up early. We get in line. He sees us because he has four monitors above watching the line from different angles. Dang, he Yonkers sees us. Yeah he, he, he's, he's, yeah. he lets us in Sorry. early. Oh, it's okay. He lets us in early. So we're, we're the only people sitting in there. We get to see him do the preparation, the chopping of the noodles, all the preparation of the veggies that go in. That was the best meal I've had. I had in Japan. And that is saying a lot because every meal was great. That bowl of udon was phenomenal. The noodles were firm, but like a little flexible. The, the, the broth, the curry broth was amazing. Yeah. It was just fantastic. And then after that, we went and had a gyoza from a shop called Gyoza Man. And all he makes is gyoza. Well, he's the gyoza man. He is the gyoza man. But yeah, the the udon was phenomenal. Listeners, what gyoza is in case they don't know. It's what is it? It's a like pot stickers or dumplings. Oh, yeah. Pot stickers. Yeah. Yeah, That's 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 the word you Americans use. Yeah. So in, in, you know, in in Chinese and I've talked about before, you know, always say jiaozi like dumplings. So it's pretty much like dumplings or if they're, you know, fried like pot stickers. But gyoza are fantastic. So excellent. Did you end up eating any sushi? I did indeed eat some sushi. Yes. It came with an appetizer of snails. Oh, oh, that's right. You sent that picture. Yes, I did it, but I did have more sushi than that. uh, Yeah, I would. I would definitely try. I mean, when you go somewhere, you have now it's one thing, obviously, if you have allergies or if something just completely disgusts you, but you really should. I feel like there's certain items that people are immediately deterred from just like, oh, ew, it's different. But you know what? Just give it a shot. Like I've tried bugs before. Yeah, and you was know, it, was it delicious? Not really, but was it bad? Not really. It was just kind of like, all right, I'm eating a crispy bug. Yeah, well, the the thing is with the snails, you know, I've had escargot before. Right. It's it's essentially the same thing, except you have to use a toothpick to get the snail out of its shell, mm-hmm. but it had been already, you know, previously deceased and marinating. Uh, anyway, the sushi was amazing. It uh, was like butter, melting butter on the tongue. Um. Uh, let's see, morning service. We had a lot of morning service sets. We had cake sets, you know, that's where you get coffee and a, and a slice of cake, uh, dinner. All the dinners were great. We had, we had this one chicken dinner with, again, melted. It was salt and pepper chicken with garlic butter. And it just melted when you would, you know, eat it. Everything was great. Every meal was great except for one, which was only good. And mm-hmm. that was the one we had under the train tracks. My mother and I went in. We thought they were a ramen shop. They weren't necessarily a ramen shop. We realized they were an oyster shop. So after we ordered our ramen, we ordered uh, kaki fry or deep fried oysters. Amazing. The oysters were great. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. And so overall, the trip, I'd imagine, was very rewarding for you. Probably yes. very spiritual, very rejuvenating. It, it it definitely helped rebuild the confidence I had in my in my language. Uh, the first day I was doing that safety net Japanese, where I'm like every other word is English because hey, I'm in Tokyo and I'm getting on trains and mm-hmm. and everyone speaks English, so they understand. But by the time I hit Kyoto, I'm like I'm going to speak Japanese. I want to make a commitment to that. Uh, I went 
up and down the street around 9 p.m. looking for a place to eat in Kyoto. And I found like the most Japanese place I could find. I mean, obviously it's in Japan, but they're like places that, you know, you can tell that cater to tourists. And there's one that just had like salary men inside. I'm like, I'll go into that one and was forced to speak Japanese. And and that's right. Regained my pace in the language. Uh but yeah, and spiritual, spiritually, like it, you know, we ended up, so we flew into Tokyo. Uh-huh. I flew into Tokyo, took the train to Kyoto, went down to Shikoku, Takamatsu first. I met my family there, my mother and sister. We went back to Imabari, which is the first town we lived in. It's a port city, but it's also Tao town, Tao Muda, uh, where they make towels. Uh, and uh, that was great. Ran into an old friend, my sister's best friend's younger brother who was between my age and my sister's age so we recreated photos we took so he had all these old photos and we re like kind of recreated and like he put together a video of like us you know old photos new photos in the morning i took a a run past the fish market down to the port found the old playground i used to play in that was fantastic found a jazz club that my favorite jazz musician used to play at which was fantastic um but then we went to my mother has done the 88 temple right. uh, pilgrimage uh, on the island of Shikoku. There are 88 temples. Uh, she took uh, two rounds doing that. Um, and uh, she wanted to show Deidre and I that experience. So we decided to walk the first three temples and it was a fantastic experience. We were exhausted. It was spiritual. It was connecting to earth. It was just, you know, it, it, we were on a pilgrimage and it felt great to, to, to walk the path that our mother had walked, uh, for those three, uh, for those first three, at least, you know, we could always go back and do more, but also to, we knew there was a train station near the third one, but we weren't quite sure we're going, going through all these neighborhoods, keep turning left, keep turning left. And then finally this like train station that looked like it had been built maybe 1930s. Oh, just like a simple stand was there. We're like, that's it. Let's get there. The train was leaving in like nine minutes. And then the next one would be in two or three hours. Oh. So, yeah. So we got on, fell asleep on the train, ended up in Takamatsu. And, and uh, yeah, from there, the next day or the day after that, we, we went back to the mainland, Kyoto, did the old Gion district, and then Tokyo to, to close out the trip. Did Shibuya, Ginza, a lot of great food. And I did get to buy the one thing I wanted to buy while I was in Japan, which was a pair of shoes, Onitsuka Tigers, yeah. made in Japan. They have the Bruce Lee version. They didn't have my size. And like I told AJ, even if they did, I feel like I'd be biting his style and uh, Bruce Lee style. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Certain brands like that are just better when you get them in Thailand or excuse me, in Thailand. I was thinking of something else. Uh, when you get them <laughs> in the country that they're from. Yes, yeah. I know there's American distributors, but because the reason I was thinking was Fairtex. Fairtex gear for Muay Thai for me has mm-hmm. always been the best. But the few times I've tried buying it in America, it's not the same. Just like, for example, one of my other favorite kickboxing brands, Leone 1947, which is an Italian brand of like the mm-hmm. highest quality. You order from their North American distributor, it's unfortunately not the highest quality. Like, but the gear I've been given from friends that in Italy, like for example, this pair of shorts I got literally eight years ago. Yep. Still fantastic. Same thing. I have a pair of Fairtex Fairtex 16 ounce Muay Thai gloves mm-hmm. that I bought in Thailand about seven or eight years ago that are still, and I've used these an insane amount. They're still good. Oh, uh, I believe it. So Next trip in Asia, it doesn't like, for example, I've also bought really high quality in Hong Kong uh, because they have a lot of uh, Muay Thai supply shops. So next time I'm go, I'm 
stocking up on gear. But your trip sounds amazing. We could do a whole episode on it, but we'll move on. I'm excited to hear more. I'm glad it was so rewarding. I'm glad you had some amazing food. I'm glad that you were able to uh, utilize your Japanese skills to their fullest. And now, real quick, martial arts movie news. So a few things. Let's do it. Uh, the main thing that was interesting to me is uh, recently it was announced that uh, Nicholas Tse, the well-known Hong Kong Canadian actor, martial artist, celebrity chef, who's now pretty much gotten back into acting in the last couple of years. He took off like a decade to become a celebrity chef. Now he's acting and he's doing fight choreography and he is going to be uh directing and i believe co-starring in the new police story 2 oh wow and so jackie chan's coming back to act in it too i'm not sure of what capacity but he nicholas say will be directing it and perhaps even fight choreography uh being the fight choreographer because he was most recently the fight choreographer on the new herman yao film he's in uh oh what's it Customs and Frontline or something like that. It's the new big action mm-hmm. movie coming out. So, and he has a lot of experience with fight choreography in the sense of working with some of the best, like Jackie, Donnie Yen, et cetera, uh, Benny Chan as a director. So it'll be real interesting to see what he does with New Police Story 2. But also in martial arts movie news, our good friends from the podcast, Mr. Michael Wirth and Frank Jang, recently mm-hmm. took a, what looks like, a last second trip to Hong Kong to film some final stuff for the long awaited Bruce Bloitation documentary that Michael is putting together. And they finally nailed the interview with the one and only Bruce Lay L E. Are you kidding? Yeah. Me? So that was like the big thing. And they posted it. It's not like this That's is huge. Secret. This is not secret well, information I'm revealing. Uh, well, it's they, secret to me because I, I, I I glimpsed on Instagram while I was away, but I didn't see that. So, yeah, that's huge. They got Bruce Lee. Uh, they did some more with Godfrey Ho. They also did some commentaries with Godfrey Ho, probably for specific Blu-ray releases. So that's all great news. The funny part is, so I need to get my new passport. I got to do it. You going to Japan. That yes, trip, you have to I do it. I need to get my new do passport it. ASAP. But I was like, oh, why didn't they ask me to come with them? I would have come help. But then the problem <laughs> is, imagine had they asked me, AJ, we want you to come along, be a part of this, help us out. And I'm like, mother effort, I don't have a pass. I would have just been heartbroken. So... Moral of the story, I'm going to get on getting my passport. Get, I, get your passport. And and yeah, you know what? I would go back to Japan and we would go eat some more food and train. Okay, yeah. No, I need to I need to take Jessica and myself on a trip. You know, I've been saying we need to do it. Uh, I need to get it going. So, yeah, yeah putting it out there in the world. But uh, anywho, that's the main martial arts movie news. Are you ready to talk about the film we are talking about today? I am, unless you want to do some quotes. Oh, Oh, my bad. Yeah, I haven't had you around for so long. I forgot all about I know. quotes. So let's hear. What do you got for me today? Okay, first quote. The perfect blossom is a rare thing. You could spend your life looking for one, and it would not be a wasted life. The Last Samurai. There you go. Yeah, so that's okay. a great line. I know that one. Excellent. All right. Okay, the next one is a four-line conversation. Okay. Between two gentlemen. Okay. First gentleman. Nothing to say, second gentleman, not with a gun on me. First gentleman, is that a principle? Second gentleman, a habit. Oh. Subtitled. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Nothing to say. No, 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 shut up, shut up. Hold on, don't say anything. I got it in my brain. I know you do. Oh, uh, 
Les Samurai. Yes. 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 <laughs> I didn't mean to be so rude. But no, I no, I, I, the, the I, I, saw, I saw your eye, the, your brain working behind your eyes. I'm like, the, he's going to get this. That's that's literally the epitome of on the tip of your tongue. So yes. while Gavin was in Japan, I finally, for the first time, watched the classic French film, Les Samurai, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I knew I would. I just had never gone around to watching it, but it was this rainy day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, had, I was just, I needed something uh, to fill my time. I was like, all right, I'm trying to be more constructive and watch classic cinema mm-hmm. that I haven't watched and also cinema outside of the martial arts genre. So Le Samurai has nothing to do with martial arts. It's just, you know, the well, it technically it does like Bushido, but there is no martial arts in it. So anywho, as soon as you started saying, I was like, wait, this is so recent. I know what this is, but uh-huh. excellent choice. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, I remember when you, I got that text, I think when I was at the airport and I'm like, oh, he had a nice viewing, particularly because in the rain, I can't think of a better film to watch. And it was good. It was good. I recommend to anybody that has HBO Max, go ahead and watch The Samurai. Yes, it's with it's in French with subtitles, but there's so much of the film that's just silence in the best kind of way. It really isn't a tedious task to have to watch this film. So especially if you're someone that typically doesn't like to watch foreign films, this would be a good choice, especially because... There's a lot of just great visuals as opposed to lengthy dialogue. But uh, anywho, awesome. Uh, I, I will say that Siskel and Ebert, I forget uh, which one. Maybe Ebert said that his, one of the, his favorite openings to a foreign film was Le Samurai. And yeah. essentially he's sitting there smoking in his room. It's, a still, it's not a still shot because the camera has some movement to mm-hmm. it, not much. But it's just it, it's one of those films, as AJ is saying, uh, for a foreign film, if you're entering watching foreign films, this is kind of perfect because it's not a ton of subtitles and the lines are all one liners. I was looking for right. a great quote from this film, but they're all, you know, soft spoken, hardly spoken characters. Really, really well done. Right. And that opening shot, you know, we get some text, which is explaining the Bushido and the the code of the samurai and stuff, but it's also purposely grainy. So you're sitting there looking at it like, oh, is the whole film going to look like this? And then when it finally cuts away, it's beautifully shot. You know, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. no, that was just the opening sequence is very mm, dreamlike, very otherworldly. Now, it's it's very appropriate for our protagonist and his overall existence and kind yes. of how he functions in the world. But okay. So, are you ready for our movie today? Oh, bring it on. So, in honor of Women's History Month, which uh, we've been trying to stick with that theme, and Gavin just getting back from Japan, we thought it was perfect timing to finally review the 1974 Japanese martial arts epic Sister Street Fighter, starring the one and only and perhaps most underrated female martial arts star ever, that most people unfortunately haven't even heard of, Etsuko Shihomi, a.k.a. Sushiomi, mm-hmm. and also co-starring the late great hero of mine, Sunny Chiba, and directed by Kazuhiko Yamaguchi. So, Very nice. Sister Street Fighter technically has nothing to do with Sunny Chiba's The Street Fighter in name only, and actually Sushiomi co-starred in the third Street Fighter movie as a whole separate character, but... This film has always been a favorite of mine. I've watched it a gazillion times. But for you, when was the first time you remember seeing this film? 
Oh, it actually had to be somewhere in college. Okay. When, that's when I went down the Street Fighter uh, rabbit hole, So, which, is a, which 90s, is a good rabbit hole to go down. Late yeah, 90s, uh, early 2000s? Early 2000s, yeah. I think okay. it was early 2000s when, at post-college, uh, post-martial law, where I was sort of on a hiatus between shows, and I just went crazy at the video store. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. That would have been around the same time. So this was one... I had never, I, I never had on VHS. So as I, as I said, I was one of those people reluctant to switch over from VHS to, to DVD. But then one of the reasons I like to, it was twofold. So I've mentioned this before. I was able to buy these martial arts packs where it was like 15 movies for uh-huh. $10 or whatever <laughs> in this giant, because they were all like kind of low quality in the sense of the actual transfer quality and you're talking about vhs right when there was still like ep mode with like three movies on one tape oh no 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 no! i'm talking about the dvd pack oh okay so what i'm talking about is the reason why i ended up switching over to dvd was because all right so you know brand new vhs at that time could still cost up to 15 bucks and at first I was like, oh, no, I'm not switching over to DVD. But then they'd have these compilation DVD packs with sometimes it would be like 15 to maybe 20 movies max. It'd be like four or five DVDs in there. And the this entire pack would cost like 10 to 15 bucks. And I was mm-hmm. like, what? And it would always be like low budget martial arts movies in there, right? And so I I started collecting these packs. It was that reason and the fact that I was more easily able to take my collection of dvds back and forth between my parents house so for me i never knew which movie i was going to want to watch that was the adventure of being that age and so i had this tote bag and i would just throw all my dvds in there every (laughs) trip to my dad's house just in case you know me and best friend eric if it was like oh we want to watch city hunter with jackie chan that's why Mm -hmm. i picked up city hunter on dvd even though i had my Mm -hmm. tysing vhs so this one it was in one of those compilation packs i first saw it and as i had mentioned before first time i saw street fighter was an edited on tv version didn't like it then when i finally pick up my dvd copy i absolutely love it so i was excited to see this one was not disappointed fell in love with it but it wasn't until a few years ago i got to see the rest in the series because the there's a total of four Sister Street Fighter movies, three officially part of the trilogy, and then a fourth one, they just attach the Sister Street Fighter name to, even though it has nothing to do with the other three. But those last three never got an American release for some reason. So there is mm-hmm. no English dub version of them. So it wasn't until they did a DVD pack release, I want to say like five or six years ago, that I got to watch them. Of course, I find when I finally decided to buy it, it was not too long afterwards they did the Blu-ray release of them. So I now have the Blu-ray pack as well. I'll have to give you the DVD one so you can. Uh, oh, yeah, please do. I haven't I haven't seen the full series yet. I haven't seen the well, full. Well, actually, series. I think they're all on uh, Tubi now. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so therefore, they're going to be the remastered versions because that's all that's available. But anyway, yeah. So I saw this in high school. Absolutely loved it. English dub version. It's wacky. It's insane. It's fun. So let's get to talking about it. Uh, Sushiomi. So. She's an interesting character. She hits the scene quite young. Like she starts making films, you know, under the Sunny Chiba banner at around 18, 19 years old. Like this film, she was 19 when it came out, uh, just about to turn 20, I think. So uh, let's see her, her birthday. Yeah, so she was not even 19 when this film came out. So they filmed it when she was eight. She was just about to turn 19. So- She's a protege of Sunny Chiba. And it's really interesting. Uh, on the Blu-ray release, there's a 
some great interviews. And there's one with Sonny Chiba where he's specifically talking about Tsushiomi and how as part of the Japanese Action Club, which was Sonny Chiba's acting school that he created. And it's real interesting because up until this interview, I always thought it was specifically a stunt school because it was called the Japanese Action Club. But he clarifies that, no, that wasn't the case. The reason he called it Japanese Action Club was, you know, lights, camera, action. So it was an overall acting uh. and stunt training school. But he did say, and he does this great analogy about how he required all of the actors to physically train their bodies first. So uh, he talks about, he makes this plant analogy where you need to cultivate the land first. And so he equated that to the human body. You know, when you're cultivating the land, you got to get rid of the rocks, you got to get rid of the weeds, you got to fertilize and everything. And so the first thing he made all of his actors do was get in shape because he felt like by honing their bodies physically, it made them better actors. They were able to project their voices. They were able to use their core. They were able to have confidence on screen. They were able to embody any role. And it actually makes a lot of sense. And he talks about how, you know, like look at Haruyuki Sanada, who we were just talking about recently. Mm -hmm. He came out of the JAC and he's one of the greatest actors on the planet. And he just happens to be an amazing martial artist also because he had to do all the physical training. So when Sushiomi went into the program, Seni Chiba instantly recognized how amazing she was, right? And uh, he actually says how, uh, uh, let's see here. So she studied for three years with them, but when they went in, there was 10,000 applications. And when he saw her, he was just blown away by her abilities. He says, even now there isn't anyone quite like her because he had never seen such an athletic woman before. She was just, had this raw sense of athleticism and an ability to do like any of the physical tasks. But when they went through the 10,000 applications uh, and, you know, the exams, which were 10 days long, he goes to see the finalists and she's not there. And he asks everybody, well, where is she? And they're like, oh, well, we can't make a star out of her. She's too masculine. You know, oh, she's got broad shoulders and big feet and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, I know. I agree with all that, but she should be here because she's incredible. And they're like, oh, well, she'll never be a leading lady. He's like, well, this is my school and I'm in charge. So she's going to make it. And they're like, all right. So he took her under his wing. And I think that so her getting in there her three years of training and her incredible physical capabilities are showcased right out the gate you see how incredible of a martial artist and athlete she is and how she could pick up any skill now her main martial arts fighting style throughout all the films is definitely shorinji kempo which as i've mm -hmm. mentioned before was a style i did for many years in college it's you know very close to me and it's a, a foundational system for me Definitely. Uh, I started at 18 and I did it all the way up until I was 21 and I was getting ready to test for my black belt when I chose to take the path of kickboxing instead. But it would make sense that she was probably around black belt level because if you train Shirinji Kempo full time, it's like three to five years during a black belt. So I'd say by the time she made this film, she was like a black belt level quality in Shirinji Kempo and her character in the story is also a Shirinji Kempo fighter, right? That's like yeah. the premise of it is she belongs to the quote unquote Shirinji school. So, I mean, that's kind of her background in terms of uh, training under Sonny Chiba. And he specifically even told like the, you know, the other people in the school, he's like, leave her to me. So she had training directly under Sonny Chiba for like three years. You know, she was one of his direct protégés mm -hmm. and he 
was also very much about supporting her. And that's not just him saying that. For example, and I'll get to this later, uh, it was either the director or the screenwriter talking about it in their interview saying Sonny Chiba was always trying to lift her up. He was trying to give her a platform because he thought her abilities were so amazing. And he even says, because she retired pretty early on, she retired in the mid 80s. She got married, uh, retired, and he said she could have just kept making movies forever and probably would have been one of the biggest stars in Japan. I feel like so obviously she she worked from about 74 to 85 and maybe that's kind of why she's not remembered. It was only about a decade's worth of work. But really, it's it's sad that so many people don't know her or recognize the contribution she's made to martial arts cinema. It's spot on. And I mean, as a her on screen performance is complete, not just completely believable, but it's innovative. I mean, and that's a lot due to her abilities, but also the camera work and the editing. And uh, her charisma is off the charts. She's actually in one of my favorite movie poster movies, uh, The Bullet Train. Oh, it, okay. I love that movie poster. It's, I think that's a, it is a Sony Chiba yeah, film. They're uh, I don't know if it's it, one of his, is it one of his, uh, is it from his company? I, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, but, I imagine it's Toei. Like Toei would be yeah. the production company, but the JAC was just a, a training ground for actors. Yeah, it, it's it's an absolute phenomenal uh, poster, and I love that. I love that we're doing uh, we're talking about her and doing one of her films, and and she's on that poster. But anyway, uh, back to back to what you were discussing. Like, I love like we've talked about this before, where they cast someone who does a particular type of martial arts that might not actually be their training. And there are people who spend time to learn that type of martial art, or they just pick up a couple of things, but then you can tell that they're slipping back into what they do. I love that this is what she's trained in and this is what we're seeing on screen. And it there's just like kind of freedom in that she can just go out and perform, which is what she does in this film. And, you know, I don't know. I, I really just, uh, it had been years since I had seen the film and rewatching these action sequences. They're just fantastic. Yeah. And there, there's something, and I think Sunny Chiba nailed it. There's something very physical and raw about her energy and her vitality. Right. Or, uh, yeah. Uh, where she, she has this believability in her skills when you watch her. And I think a lot of that has to do with the Shirinji Kempo, uh, background also, because, there's and they they display it in the film. There's something called embu as part of Shinji Kempo, which is like partnered, almost pre-rehearsed forms. Yes, so like choreographed forms. Uh, it, and it's funny, all of the kata you learn in Shinji Kempo, they're they're shorter, and there's always a counterpart to the kata. So the katas mm-hmm. become embus. So pretty much you learn how to do these paired forms, like pre pre-re- uh, pre-rehearsed routines. It's good for you know, muscle memory, reaction, but it also transitions quite well to the screen. So it shows she has this real raw strength in her ability and her techniques, but also this ability to land the shots. Mm, yes. Almost like a point karate fighter. Yes. Right, and pull them in a sense. So it looks like she's hitting, but not hurting, you know, her the stuntman and stuff. But it adds this real life effect where it's like, okay, she's actually hitting the other stuntmen. But... It's not like, say, later on Hong Kong, where they were straight up just hitting each other full force for the effect. Here, it's a little bit different. It's earlier on. It's the early 70s. And that's kind of what sets her apart differently from her counterparts in Hong Kong at the time, whether it be Angela Mao, 
uh, or any of the other female stars where here it's, it's that element where it's like when you see her kick, she's landing like a really solid, hard sidekick. Right. But also there's this, I'm not trying to put it synchronicity between her lower body and her upper body. And I talk about this a lot, right? Where, you know, sometimes you have this amazing kicker and their upper body's like flailing around. Or you have this uh, performer who, where their all their upper body techniques are great, but then their leg, their kicks are kind of like, uh. she has both down because I feel like it's that foundational root in the Shirinji Kempo style where, you know, she's very conscious of what she's doing with her upper body while she's kicking and vice versa because, you know, she's a f- martial artist first maybe, or even at the same time as opposed to performer. Like for example, uh, not to like rag on someone like say Angela Mao, who later on learned Hapkido, right? It's like you see her kicks and stuff, but you don't necessarily see her upper body coordinating with that, right? Like being aware or Mm -hmm. conscious of, oh, my hand should be here in case I'm getting counterpunched or something. So that's something I appreciate about her skills and what she brings to the screen. No, yeah, it, it's you're spot on. I mean, there's, there's really nothing to add uh, when you when you weigh in on the, your expertise of of what we're seeing on the screen, uh, and what I like about this film as well is while many of the characters are using the same form of martial arts, at least the the good guys, it's how each of them expresses themselves through their their specific form of karate. Like, I mean, watching Sony Chiba as well, just, I don't know. It, there's, there's so much expression in what he does. And even, even that one sequence where she looks past the gate and she sees him training, it's like, it's just so free flowing. And some of the training sequences are, I think for me, some of the best group training sequences I've seen, it, it looks like real, they went to a real martial arts school and those are, Exactly. You nailed it. Yeah. So like when they go to the Shorinji school, those are obviously like when they, they show, they walk in on the class and they're meditating. That's a real part that we ended every class with where you have the guy with the pole because yes. they'd go around and put it behind your back to make sure you're uh-huh. upright. And yes. when you see the the two guys performing, they're doing the embu, the paired form. Uh, where they like kick and punch, kick and punch. And almost usually, uh, it almost always ends with a Juho technique, like a soft technique, like Aiki mm-hmm. Jiu-Jitsu, like a wrist lock and throw. And that's one of the things I always loved about Trinji Kempo and why it transitions so well to screen. You have the kicks and punches of like a kickboxing style. Because it's very, that's kind of what Trinji Kempo, you know, it's, it's supposedly, I've heard it put this way, like, Japanese technique on a Chinese framework. And it gives it very much Mm. this fluid style. So you'll have the kicks and punches of almost like a kickboxing style finished with like a Steven Seagal Aiki Jiu-Jitsu type throw. So when we see the the training sequence in the the dojo at the beginning, those are obviously real Shrinji Kempo practitioners. And the funny part is the head sensei is obviously supposed to be like Doshin So or So Doshin, the, the founder of Shrinji Kempo. It's obviously not uh-huh. him, but they have yeah. the guy looking just like him with the beard and wearing yes. like the traditional I, I love the, yeah. the, There's one line in the film that I just absolutely love is after uh, Sony Chiba defeats uh, multiple assailants and uh, the the docent walks up to him and, and says, I don't like violence, but in this case, and they both yeah. laugh. It, like, just, oh, it, old, like, it depends. I watched it both in Japanese and English. Okay. And I think in the English, I forget which one he says, well, you're never going to be promoted with that behavior. Oh, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, you I know, didn't so, see that one. Yeah. So it's, uh, 
it's funny. It's more like Sonny Chiba comes out to do the dirty work so they don't get their hands dirty. But And that's yeah. the great thing about Sonny Chiba's role is it's very much, it's almost can be considered like a cameo. He comes out pretty much for three scenes, including the finale, but by no means does he steal the show. He's just there to kind of add to the action. But he's just so darn good. He is really good. That even seeing him for those quick little bits, you're like, oh yeah, this is why he's one of the greatest. So fast. I yeah. mean, I, I don't, if... If any of our listeners haven't seen Sony Chiba yet, uh, you're in for a real treat because he is so fast, so quick, so accurate, so powerful. He is I like, you know, AJ and I connected over Samuel Hung, essentially that that's where that's where things started for us. I mean, of course, Peter Sugar for Cunningham and Samuel Hung. But I'm gaining greater appreciation every time I see Sony Chiba now, thanks to this podcast and this this friendship where you where you talk about what he does on screen and, and getting me to return to these films. It just he is just so much fun. He, he's he is kind of the total package. Like we like when when I watch the three, and I, I know comparison isn't isn't always necessarily the best way to go, but when we when I watch like Dragons Forever. There's Jackie Chan, Yun Biao, Samuel Hung. In many ways, Sony Chiba encapsul- encapsulates the three of them in one person. And it's kind of freaking phenomenal. Well, it also has to do with his, not only his authentic martial arts background, mm-hmm. where technically he was martial artist first before coming an actor. As we've mentioned before, he was a world-class gymnast that got yep. injured. He was trying to get on the Olympic team. He got injured. So while he was in university, he took up karate under Masoyama. Uh-huh. The actual founder of Kyokushin Kai Karate. So his, you know, his athletic and martial arts background was first. And so not only that, he has such a diverse background. And he actually talked about it in this behind the scenes interview where, you know, he was very high level, black belt level in both Kyokushin Karate and in Shorinji Kempo. And it actually caused a lot of conflict because he made Shirinji Kempo movies like this one and he made Kyokushin movies. And it just goes to show that the politics of martial arts are not just in Chinese martial arts. It also runs in Japanese because he would oh, get in yeah. trouble. He would do like a Kyokushin movie and the Shirinji Kempo folks would be like, hey, what the heck are you doing? You can't do that. And then he would go Shirinji Kempo and do that movie. And then the Kyokushin folks would be like, hey, but in my honest opinion, maybe it's just because he learned Kyokushin kind of earlier on. When, when you watch him like, do one of the Kyokushin movies. And when you watch him do the Shirinji Kempo movies, his his Shirinji Kempo scene is like, I had to say flawless, but it's just spot on. Whereas his Kyokushin, you know, isn't, I mean, it, it's still really good and I'm, I'm not the expert, but if anything, I feel like he naturally possessed the spirit of the Shirinji Kempo style. Yeah, I, and, I agree. And here... You, you see it. It's just his his technique almost looks cleaner, in my opinion. It's so it it's yeah, it absolutely it completely looks cleaner. Yeah, and he does such a good job in this one, particularly of flowing from, as I said, strikes to for audience listeners, the best way to analogy would be Steven Seagal type throws. So like punch, punch, kick, 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 grab them by the wrist, then do a Steven Seagal throw. So imagine a Steven Seagal film, which you know, the early ones everyone loves, you know, the hard hitting bone breaking throws and stuff. Then imagine if Steven Seagal could do like a jump split kick, a spinning wheel kick, a bunch of punches and everything on top of all that, which no, he was never yeah, able it, to it, do. It, so it's like, yeah, again, it's like, again, merging people, what it's like an early Steven Seagal film merged with, uh, Donnie Yen's flashpoint. Ooh. Then you have Sonny Chiba. Oh, I like that because Sonny Chiba also was a black belt in judo. So yeah, uh, definitely 
So from, I remember reading growing up and stuff, according to the internet. So we know for a fact that Sonny Chipo was definitely a black belt in both Kyokushin Karate, which is a huge deal, and Shorinji Kempo. And then I believe I've also heard him specifically say judo in an interview. But I've also read that he was a black belt in ninjutsu and other things. But uh-huh. uh, I don't know about those. I can only speak 100% to the Shorinji Kempo and the Kyokushin. But we haven't even got to talking about the story. So let's get to that real quick. So the story has it where our uh, protagonist... So uh, Tsushiomi plays uh, Li Honglong, a.k.a. Li Koryu, or <laughs> Tina Long in the English version. Uh-huh. So we'll just say Tina. Uh, she is a champion of the Shorinji School of Hong Kong. So her character, I don't believe they ever specifically say it in this one, but the next one is supposed to be like half Chinese. And uh, half Chinese, half Japanese. Her brother is a Hong Kong narcotics agent that's sent over to Japan. He gets captured. They don't know what happens to him. So she goes over there to investigate. They ask her, the Hong Kong you know, police, the government asks her to go over there and try to find him. So she teams up with her uncle and uh, her cousins only to find out, we find out later on, spoiler, her uncle has actually been forced to work for the gangsters. And she discovers the seedy underworld with drugs and uh, nefarious villains. And so the film is her trying to find her brother who's being held captive by them and they're forcing him to take heroin and, you know, (laughs) drugging him to death. And we have these very eccentric, crazy villains, which after watching the interviews with both the writer and the director makes more sense. And I'll get to that here in a second. But And can can I just say, these villains are, are everything that a James Bond villain would be, but just all of them together in a room. Precisely. And they just don't kill their protagonists. Imagine James Bond mixed with the Batman TV series in I terms gonna of the, say, like, aesthetics and production and the music and Enter the Dragon. So let's take that. Yes. So we're going to take four different elements. Brrr, enter the Dragon. James Bond, the Batman TV series, and then the Sonny Chiba style action. Put it all together. And Sister Street Fighter, that's what you get. And I yes. love every second of it. But, oh, man, is there some cheesy hoke in it? The, the funny part is when it comes to the fight scenes, you have some that are just technically brilliant. And some of the choreography, mm-hmm. some of the camera work, some of the angles, it's phenomenal. Ahead of its time, hard-hitting, fast-paced. You see that nowadays. You'd be blown away. Other times, it comes off as a little cheesy and hokey. But it's kind of they intentionally did that, right? Like, But it'll even yeah. it'll flawlessly, go, flawlessly go back and forth. Like even Tina's first fight scene in the restaurant where she's ordering spaghetti. And those thugs are pretty much like trying to grab her. <laughs> But and then she like when she starts off fighting them, she kind of does this cheesy crescent kick combo like ba 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 ba. Then the camera cuts and she does this series of action where suddenly you're like, oh man, that's that's hard hitting, that's hardcore. And then it'll cut back and forth, right? Like with kind of yes. little, and then it has her doing this kind of Bruce Lee esque like, and it, it, the 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 one thing that was missing from this film was Adam West. <laughs> Everything else was in there. Yeah. Uh, because Sony Chiba was your slick uh, James Bond character. But back, to, I, I didn't mean to interject too much. So back back to the story. You, you've discussed the villains. Well, that's pretty much the story. So okay. I mean, we don't really well, and, to- and the heroine is, I think they discover the heroine's being. Uh, oh, uh, shipped in wigs. Shipped in wigs and the and the wigs of hair and uh, so yeah at one point someone sniffs the hair and they realize or tastes a, a fabric of the hair and they realize oh that's where the heroine's being shipped right so uh, but the were, wigs I I never see the wigs being pushed on the street okay, they're just yeah. always in the factory on 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 heads well I'd imagine it's not to be pushed on the streets of Japan it's to well, export yeah, that's, them that's out true. of the country but so there's a great interview with the writer Masahiro Kakafuda uh, on the Blu-ray release and. 
a lot of this makes sense. So right out the gate, this it's so funny. Jessica was watching this interview with me and we kind of started laughing because he's this, you know, he's in his 80s now. And one of the first thing he says in the interview is, I, I had a preference for writing erotic films. <laughs> and oh so goodness. at this time period, you see a ton of these films that uh, he wrote and it's like, you know, the emperor and his 28 concubines and mm-hmm. you see the posters. You're like, oh, my God. And my favorite one, though, was a film he wrote called Orgies of Edo. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that was this guy's preference. But it makes sense, especially with these films, the Sister Street Fighter series. There's a lot of kind of highly sexualized elements to them. There's uh, like weird sadomasochist torture scenes where they're very voyeuristic, where like the villains mm-hmm. are all watching like, huh, huh, huh. and even when someone's being tortured, it's kind of you know, like weirdly sexualized in a sense. It's like even just from the way they, they're in, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange, but it, well, it, it go ahead. It, no, no, it's funny. And it's a, it actually kind of goes back. So this film was on upon its original release rated X. Right. And, you know, it's funny because when I was listening to you and Tiger speak last week about martial art films, just getting bumped up to rated R because people were afraid that kids would try it and get hurt. So this film, it's like, because, Regular martial art films are rated R, and because there there are you know there are a couple scenes that I you know they cut away and it becomes voyeuristic where you're watching the people watch something that's taking place behind the camera. Even with that said, it gets bumped up to rated X because everything is pushed, and obviously that that was uh, in retrospect changed down. But and also you know there's a cut cut version, uncut version. Right. But yeah, it's, there's this there is this like there. Their hints in in some of these scenes that uh, you know bad things are happening and even more bad things is kind of left to our imagination to an extent. Yeah, the villains throughout the Sister Street Fighter series definitely have some uh, some weird. They have some. Fetishes. They need to. They yeah. need to get into therapy. Yeah, definitely. And because all, at the other at the other point at the other side of the coin is like, how long are they keeping people alive? Like, oh, we're just going to slowly kill the brother with heroin laced with poison. For months. That's a that's a waste of heroin too, you know? Yes, and poison. It, yeah. What could they be? Yeah, they could actually kill some real rats with that. <laughs> so the uh, Kakafuda-san, the, the writer, it, one of the reasons he did enjoy making the karate films though was because he had mentioned he liked the fictional setting so he could really use his imagination and he liked writing female characters. So... He definitely uses his imagination. But one of the things when you had mentioned the wigs with the heroin, uh, he was talking about how to make the karate film stand out from the Hong Kong films and be interesting. And he quote unquote said, you have to have interesting villains in karate movies. Hence the heroin in the wigs. Hence, like in one of the later films, they're smuggling diamonds in girls' butts. And I mean, like they actually, they cut open the butt cheek, put it in there. And then, yeah, that's like in the second or third one. So- and obviously, these villains are very eccentric. They're, they're costumes. They're, it's this weird, crazy cast of people. But uh, the interesting part is you see it right out the gate. And I mentioned it briefly. So the Tina character is supposed to be half Chinese. She's from Hong Kong. She does some very Bruce Lee-esque type things. But the influence of Enter the Dragon is there. And uh, he specifically says, Enter the Dragon had a huge effect on us. You couldn't help but have it imprinted on your mind. Enter the Dragon became like the Bible for all future karate films. So it is very interesting that like throughout our villain, 
he has a claw, like Han from Enter the Dragon, right? He has the whole underground layer, which is definitely based off the underground layer of Enter the Dragon. Uh, Tina coming from Hong Kong. And in the later films, the funny part is, I think it's in the second or third one, they really drive home. As I said, they make it that her character's half Chinese. And in one of them at the beginning, they're speaking in Mandarin as if, like, which makes no sense because if she was from Hong Kong, they'd be speaking Cantonese. But the funny part is, there, and this is in the Japanese dub, so... And the the nice thing about these films are, remember, Japanese films are made with sync sound. So we're hearing the actual actors. They're being recorded on set, unlike Mm -hmm. Hong Kong films at the time, which were all dubbed later on because they didn't film with sync sound. So you have in one of the films, the opening sequence, it's her and someone in Hong Kong speaking together in Chinese, but they're Uh speaking Mandarin. And her Mandarin is so bad. Like I'm trying to watch (laughs) it. I remember one of the first times I watched it, I'm like, that doesn't sound like Japanese, but I had no idea it was Mandarin until – like for ex- I'm trying to think of what she says exactly. Like uh, I don't know. Let's let's break down a sentence. Like uh, I don't want to go. It's she'll say it like You know, it's like it's, it's unfortunately <laughs> it's like someone's holding up a, a card right. with one phonetic sound at a time. Yeah, it's so, like uh, Robert Mitchum trying to speak Japanese in the Yakuza. Although he gets the essence, the words kind of blend together. The the vowels and everything right. blend together. But the interesting thing was also kind of one of the reasons Sister Street Fighter even came to fruition was the fact that the director, uh, Kazuhiko Yamaguchi, so Yamaguchi-san, was initially, he had made this whole series of like kind of girl protagonist films, uh, the delinquent girl boss series with a a pop star at the time, uh, Keiko Fuji. Uh, He was supposed to make a karate film with Angela Mao. Oh, wow. And they were going to have Angela Mao come over, but she ran into visa issues and they couldn't wow. do it. So it's sort that's of like- phenomenal. Exactly. So that's why it's suddenly, it's like, okay, well, Sunny Chiba's like, all right, I'm going to, you should use this girl, Itsuko Shiomi, right? And mm-hmm. let's do a movie with her. She had already done a couple of Sunny Chiba's films. And uh, he also talks about how he was hesitant at first, but her physical capabilities he had never seen before. He had never seen a, a female- star do the things she can do her athleticism and i think that's prevalent throughout the film also like even something i meant to mention before her use of weaponry she is so good with the nunchaku which by the way that villain that has the double really? nunchucks he needs to hold on to his nunchucks because every time she ends up taking one from him but uh <laughs> no. so she's really but good that, at, that double nunchuck scene is fantastic yeah, she is good with the nunchucks and then even later on she does a little bit with the sigh and she's like yes. awesome with the sigh which just she's just so good at any martial arts stuff but uh, and he, uh, he even mentions by the time she gets to doing her third film, she's just a phenomenal actress and just spot on with all of her martial arts stuff. But yeah, I know I've been rambling. I, yeah, I try to get as much as I can here in the hour. Well, uh, the the one character that I I, I think really stand out uh, stood out to me as a side character, of course, for those of our listeners who are in the ballet world, James. Ah is the character played by Amy Hayakawa. Are you talking so about Sunny Chiba's girlfriend? Yes. So yes. she's the she's the ballerina and there's there is like a ballet scene. Very interesting ballet scene. I don't know if it's necessarily accurate. It's definitely not uh for for again for our listeners, it's not Balanchine, but it's great to see uh her do some uh some ask or butt kicking uh as while well, like post uh, ballet class because the, the the villains come in to a ballet class and they're wearing their shoes on the Marley floor oh, or whatever kind of no. floor that is. And I'm sorry that you don't do that. 
Well, and the funny part is the villains. Like, so that's one thing we've mentioned it before, but okay, aesthetically from production side, we've talked about how amazing the fights are, uh, costume and and we've talked a bit about set design, which is cool, but the costumes. So that's the thing about this eccentric cast of uh, villains. So our lead villain actually has a whole, there's this one sequence in his backyard where he's just chilling by the pool and he has uh-huh. all of these killers and he likes to collect freaks, as he says. They're like his animals in the zoo. So he has all these different martial arts masters that are of different styles. And a lot of them are just in these very eccentric outfits and costumes. So like, for example, even our heroes, Sushiomi quite often throughout the film wears either her traditional like uh, Hong Kong style clothing or she wears the traditional Shirinji Kempo robes. So like when I trained in Shirinji Kempo, you were typically in a normal gi, but we also had the formal robes that they wear throughout the film. Yes. Our villains, we've got like the Amazon 7, this group of female Muay Thai fighters that wear like leopard print. You've got, uh, so once again, the great... Uh, Ichibashi-san, who plays one of the villains, mm-hmm. who is one of my top villains from... Uh, uh, the Street Fighter, his group of guys that go to the ballet school, they have these giant helmet type. They look like the hats of the three storms from Big Trouble in Little China, but they're full yeah. on helmets that yeah. cover their face. I yeah, don't know what it's, those are it's called. basically like, you know, the, the, we do see these like basket hats right. uh, throughout time where people are like hiding their, uh, hiding their identity in, in the old samurai films, but just they, these are helmets now. Right. You've got, and to, then they just remove them. Yeah. Like, don't remove your protection. Yeah. Then you've got the villain with his claw and his sunglasses. You've got the uh-huh. nunchuck guy we mentioned who wears that weird net shirt. Man, underneath. that guy was, that guy He's, was he all to out. Scream. <laughs> like, you have to see all it out to get and it. all in. Yeah. The, I'd say the most normal and also jacked one is the bow staff master. That dude is yeah. ripped. But, uh, and then my favorite, though, is the fat Elvis. Uh, <laughs> yes. that, so there's this henchman. In his first scene, he's in a suit, so it kind of makes sense. All right, he's just like a Yakuza guy. But no, throughout the rest of the film, he's shirtless with sunglasses. At one point, he's lifting weights in the backyard. He's doing like a barbell press. But this guy is not like a sumo where, you know, physically it's very impressive what they can do. And they're built specifically like a sumo. No, this guy just has the ultimate beer gut. He's he's just he a does. huge gut and no he, upper he's, body he's, strength. He's late stage mass. Elvis. Yeah, late stage Elvis. He's kind of got Elvis sideburns. He, he wears sunglasses. It looks like he has like a Walkman of some sorts while he's lifting uh-huh. weights. And <laughs> he definitely gets his comeuppance at the end. So uh, Tina, it, 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 or, no, the, Sonny so, kills him. Yeah, there's so many scenes that it, there's even one scene where there's some canted angles in the fight sequences. And I'm like, is someone watching Adam West Batman? Oh, because yeah. It, particularly where, where the, she's fighting the Amazonian women. I'm like, where is... In the restaurant? Yes. That whole sequence screams the Batman TV series for me. It does. Like, without it does. a doubt. And the thing is, though, I loved the Batman TV series. and I, I did, too. I got to... Uh, so, I was born in the like mid-late 80s. So, I was, like, you know, three years old when uh, Batman came out. No, I was a little over two. But the Batman VHS tape was, like, the first one I ever had. Because my mom, as I've mentioned before, thought it was like the Batman TV series. So I mistakenly got to watch 1989 Batman when I was three years old. But when they were getting ready to release the film, they started showing the Batman TV series on TV. So Mm -hmm. my mom actually uh, recorded a bunch of them on TV. And I used to watch this tape. In fact, hold on. Listeners, give me like 20 seconds. Hold on. One man as he searches for tapes and proof. Okay. 
I, I tried right, to I, I tried to do another movie voice recording for right, you Gavin and it Taylor. failed. But check this out. Can you read Batman what that says? old TV shows on VHS tape, probably recorded in EP mode, so you have multiple episodes. Yeah, this this tape is the same one from 1989, and I've held on to it for all these years, along with like my, my real VHS because I used to watch this thing religiously. So I love the old Batman TV series, which is oh, now it's. Easily accessible. You can watch it, you know. On no, it's so much services. fun. And, and, you know, it's uh, the, the same thing. That I, so there's there's definitely definitely camp in the old Batman TV series and there's camp in this film. But it's also it's just done. It's a it's a really well balanced film. I yes. mean, there there is some adult content. You want to make sure you get like the even when even in the cut versions. There's adult content in the implication. It's just right. the way the guy wrote it and yeah. the way it's shot. For example, creepy fat Elvis also at one point starts like sexually assaulting a character because they're threatening, you know, her that way. That's yeah. why I'm like, he gets his comeuppance. Don't worry, Sonny Chiba. That's the thing I do love, though, is with uh, throughout these films, typically with those kind of villains, they punish them. Uh, they do punish as them. As they should be. Yes. Like, Yeah. But we should probably start wrapping things up. I, I feel like we address most of the main things. This film probably sounds insane to people that aren't used to the Sunny Chiba films from that era. It's completely different. So aesthetically, yes, they borrow elements like uh, visually from Enter to the Dragon. But it is nothing like the Hong Kong films you were watching at that time. <laughs> Sorry about that, technical difficulties. That took a lot longer than expected. In podcast time, it was about 30 seconds with uh, that little uh, interval there. But now we don't even remember what we were talking about. So (laughs) I guess it's time to wrap things up. So really, final notes. This film is a heck of a lot of fun. If you're only familiar with Hong Kong style pictures, it'll definitely be a change of pace. Something completely different that you haven't really seen before. And I can't recommend it enough. I love Japanese cinema. I love Japanese karate films, or in this case, Shorinji Kempo films, which are kind of almost like a little subgenre that just aren't that well known. You know, people mm-hmm. obviously know and love kung fu films. They know and love the Chambara films or even Yakuza films. But mm-hmm. really, the 1970s karate slash martial arts films don't get enough credit and i feel like i mean you know we obviously had the main sunny chiba ones that got released but there were so many more that just unfortunately didn't get the exposure they deserve but what are your final closing thoughts on this picture my friend uh well it's a great watching this film talking about this film has been a great way to wrap up uh just my whole japan experience uh you know, it's campy, it's uh, innovative, it's reimagined, it's uh, it's a little risque at times. Oh yeah, uh, and it also does exactly what we talk about with a lot of martial art films, uh, martial arts studios, martial art classes, martial arts in general empowers the individual, male or female. There is not a the answer is not always the most ripped, most buff dude. Uh, your action lead can be a competent, secure, strong, technically sound uh, female, male. It's just fantastic to to see 
that that's one thing that I love about the martial art films. It's not about the most jacked dude, unless that person is Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. Uh, but even, even then, but I bet, but just to get back on point, like what, what we see in martial art in, in the real martial arts world and what we see in these films are strong women, uh, that don't, I don't want to say don't have to rely on no man, but that learn to learn the tools to rely on themselves and save, save the world. Or in this case, save their brother who's hooked on a uh, wig induced heroin. Couldn't have put it better myself. So to finish things out, language corner this week, let's have you do it, buddy. Since you just got back from Japan, this is a Japanese film. What do you got for us? Okay. So today I'm going to go with Osewari Narimashita. Okay. A lot of words. Let's we'll break it down. Break it down. Ose, so sewa or osewa. Osewa. It ni narimashita. Ni narimashita is the past tense. It means to uh, to thank someone for their support, their kindness, or I I I was. You know that's the like direct translation, but it's also like I was. Uh, not indebted, not indebted to. That's wrong, but sort of like thanks to you. Uh, so basically, when I was in Japan, we were saying a lot of "osewari narimashita." Thank you very much. Thanks to your kindness. Thanks to your opening your doors. Like the the folks who were in Imabari, they opened the doors to uh, a home where we had a place to stay for a little while, where my mother and sister had a place to stay for multiple weeks. So "osewari narimashita," and it's something you say. Uh, to someone that you're indebted to, or when you're meeting them for the first time, like I would say to the, say to people, oh, my family is, uh, thank you for taking care of my family. So to break it down, Osewa. Osewa. Ninarimashita. Ninarimashita. Perfect. Osewa. Ninarimashita. Yes. Excellent. I love it. That's a great one. Okay, my friend. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. We'll decide what we're doing uh, for next week, and I'll catch you later. All right. Take care. All right. Peace. Good brother. to be back. Yeah.